Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Liverpool Echo and the whole Daily Mail. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. We've got a great episode this week as one of the North's leading business figures, NP11 Chair Sir Roger Marsh, tells us why the next Prime Minister can't afford not to invest now in the future of our region. And academic Matt Cook, the author of a new book, Queer Beyond London, tells our producer Dan McLaughlin why there is such a thing as a Northern and Southern queer identity. But before we get to that, let's check in on what's been happening this week in the North. Dan O'Donoghue's off this week, but we've got an excellent replacement in the form of Liam Thorpe, the Liverpool Echo's political editor. Liam, how are you doing? Hi Rob, thank you for the very charming intro there. That's that's the type of intro I, I specialise in, uh, absolutely fine. Um, so I think it's fair to say that nationally, the Tory leadership race is still the big story. I mean, from my perspective, we've not heard lots of policies that will tackle the entrenched issues that the North faces. And in fact, the one policy that Liz Truss came out with, which did relate to the North, was criticised not just by Labour, but by senior people in her own party. She suggested that to save billions uh, in costs from the civil service, that uh, regional pay boards should be introduced, which would mean that not just civil servants, but the public servants outside London would have their pay cut, which went down so badly with pretty much everyone that she, within a few hours, she had not only you turned on this policy, but said that actually she never had it in the first place, despite it being in the press release that went out the previous the previous day. So not a great success. But it's a journalist's um, fault. Journalist's fault, Rob. Yeah, well, exactly. Just maliciously quoting back the things that she actually said. But I mean, from your perspective, obviously you cover a region that doesn't have a huge amount of sympathy with the Conservatives at the moment anyway. I mean, how is it how is it all playing out? Yeah, I think essentially it's go this whole leadership campaign is is going on in in something of a parallel universe to to most people that I come across and certainly to people who are struggling to think about paying energy bills, struggling to put food on the table. Obviously we've got some of the most deprived constituencies here. I think Liverpool Walton is currently the top ranked most deprived constituency in the country. So you know, these people are sort of fighting day to day to get by. And with the energy cap rise coming in the autumn, they're looking looking ahead to a, a pretty terrifying winter. So, yeah, this to, to hear, obviously, some of the stuff that's coming out from Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak about tax cuts, about this this war on woke, you know, these things that they're doing to, to really appeal to this very small group of, what do we think, around 160,000 Conservative members. I don't think people in Liverpool who already, as you've pointed out, don't feel particularly involved or invested in the Conservative Party couldn't feel really sort of more detached from, from what's going on here. It's that, you know, the, the Tories are not popular here. They don't have any representation here, in, certainly in Liverpool, and only one seat um, in Southport across the whole of Merseyside. And I think when you point out that Liz Truss U-turn, one of the few things that the woman who's going to be our next Prime Minister most probably has said about the North... Is, is about cutting pay for, for teachers and nurses and armed forces people and, and things like that. And then obviously had to U-turn on it. That doesn't scream levelling up to me. And, and I think it will only add to the cynicism felt by many people around here in terms of what this next Prime Minister is actually going to do for people. 
I don't know about you, Rob, but I'm not hearing a great deal from either of them on the cost of living crisis on immediate things that they can do as soon as they are elected to stop this absolute hurricane that's coming towards people. No, I think you're right. There's not been a huge amount on that. To be fair, in Liz Truss's defence, one other policy she has come out with is that she would build Northern Powerhouse Rail, the big high-speed rail line uh, connecting the big cities of the north in full. Although it, I think there's still a bit of confusion about exactly what that means and you know, will it include uh, a new line to Bradford? Uh, you know, exactly what version of Northern Powerhouse Rail is she yeah. pledging to build? But I mean, it does. I, I saw one interesting comment, which is that basically the Conservative Party membership is two thirds sort of right wing, essentially. And then there's a third of the party membership that is more left wing comparatively. And so the winning candidate is always in this Tory leadership race is going to be the candidate that can persuade Tory members that he or she is the right leaning candidate, which seems to be what Liz Truss has has done. And so Rishi Sunak is trying to play catch up with policies that he thinks might get more support from that side of the of, of the Tory base. So when I see that he's he's now he's proposing a new new action against people who vilify the country and aren't sufficiently patriotic and that, you know, some something akin to the Prevent programme would be used to tackle these people, which sounds almost Orwellian. I think if you if you look at my Twitter feed then I better pack my bags and say goodbye to my loved ones. <laughs> because I think the thing is the ir- the deep irony of this is that people many people do feel a deep sense of dissatisfaction with where the country is, um, but that's poss- for a lot of people that's because of of what's gone on in government over the last twelve years of conservative government. People feel that you know their their standard of living has has decreased massively that they don't have the opportunity that, that they had and they're really worried about the future. That's not being unpatriotic. That's being deeply concerned about the state of the country that you're living in and what it means for you. I think so I think there is a bit of an irony to, to what Sunak's saying there, but it, it certainly feels to me like his he knows he's, you know, he's way, way off the pace in the in terms of the polls. He's a, he's it's getting to the point where he's, you know, they're about to declare trust the winner already. And I think his we're seeing a kind of increasingly desperate um, lurch to some of those kind of more right-wing policies as he tries to try and desperately hoover up a few a few more votes um you know it's it's and it seems to be getting a bit wilder by the day really yeah it, it does seem that way i mean obviously the both candidates or whichever candidate wins will at some stage in the next two years have to contest a general election and and, and you know sometime between winning the Tory leadership race and that point they are going to have to come out with some policies that will appeal not just to their base and to the country at large so maybe they do have those ideas to be charitable to them but I guess the the concern is that they've had to paint themselves into a corner with all these increasingly right-leaning policies to persuade the the Tory selectorates and that's going to stop them from coming out with more moderate unifying policies down further down the line because they've already pushed themselves too far to the right. Doesn't it just kind of feed into the the cynicism people feel with politics? You, look, we work in this in this arena, so I guess we, we we're more alive to it. But if you were to say to a person in the street, "Well, they're coming out with all this stuff because they want to get elected by this small amount of people who have this level of views," then when they actually get elected, they might change that. It it it's it feels very transactional. It feels like they they are they they're not actually saying necessarily what they believe or what they want to do. Maybe some of it is. It's just a means to an end, and I think that will drive further kind of cynicism with people with politics if, if they think it's it's all about just getting those votes. 
So you mentioned the issues that people are facing right now. And I, I imagine in Liverpool and in a large parts of the North, in fact, one of those is the uh, ongoing strike action. We've had strikes on the train, strikes in the courts, uh, strikes all over the place. And in Liverpool, there is a bus strike going on. How, how long has it been going, up, going on for now? So we are now into the 16th consecutive day of the Arriva bus strike. I should point out, this is actually across the Northwest as well. It's just in Merseyside, um, Arriva is one of only two big bus operators along with Stagecoach. And it, 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 yeah, it means that for 16 days, there have been zero Arriva buses uh, available across the whole region. That's a region of roughly 1.5 million people. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. There's plenty of areas where Arriva's, Arriva buses are the only buses you can get. So for those people, they have no public transport because the the Mersey Rail network here um, doesn't extend to a lot of places. A lot of places, it's it's there are many pe- many people who don't live anywhere near a Mersey Rail station. So if you don't live near a train station and there's no Arriva buses, you're pretty screwed. So and it's been going on for as I say 16 days and there's no real sign of a of a breakthrough at this point. So I, I would predict that unless something changes dramatically, we'll be heading into the weekend and into next week with this strike ongoing. It's a pretty bleak picture, and it's one that's mirrored, I think, across the north. I know in South Yorkshire, we had uh, the South Yorkshire mayor on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that if the cuts to bus services that come in in South Yorkshire do, in fact, take effect, you won't be able to get a bus in the town of or the borough of Barnsley uh, after 7pm at all. There just won't be any running. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so there's a lot... Uh, a lot of issues for our two leadership candidates to consider, whether we'll hear much more from them in the coming days, remains to be seen. But let's now hear from this week's guests. So we're into week two of the slow-burning Tory leadership race with Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss crisscrossing the country trying to win over the party members who will decide our next Prime Minister in just a few weeks. It's been a summer of speeches and promises, not all of which stand up to much scrutiny. But how do we ensure the North's interests are best represented by whoever enters number 10 Downing Street in a few weeks' time? One man who ought to know is Sir Roger Marsh, who was knighted last year services to business, economy and the community across the North and in West Yorkshire and is a former senior partner at PwC Leeds. Until recently, the chair of the Leeds City Region Local Enterprise Partnership, he remains chair of the NP11, which brings together local enterprise partnership chairs from across the North to work with government and achieve its vision for the Northern powerhouse. He's been fighting the good fight for the North for years, so is well placed to assess where things stand with the levelling up agenda promoted by Boris Johnson and how to progress on what's been achieved so far. So, Sir Roger, welcome to our podcast. Good morning, Rob, and good morning to all those listening. Nice to have you on. So why don't we start just by getting a sense from you about where things are in terms of the aims that we all have for the North, creating that thriving economy from Hull to Liverpool, from the Dales to the Moors and everything everything in between. Boris Johnson is on his way out. He was the one who made a lot of promises to Northern England in 2019 uh, and the, his his two potential successors are fighting it, fighting it out. Where, where I'm sure you've been observing it closely. I mean, how how happy are you with what you've been hearing and what it might mean for the government's commitment to, to the North? Uh, well, thank you, Rob. Um, 
thank you for the introduction. It's not so much about happiness, it's about making sure that the purpose um, going forward, whatever it might be called, leveling up or otherwise, you know, delivers the growth that, that is much needed. And as you've heard me say many times, in seeing the North as part of a national economic solution, not just a problem to be managed, uh, and, and actually bringing out the opportunities. And clearly, you know, inflation, where it's going, cost of living and all the rest, of, and Ukraine has, has, has created an even uh, stronger burning platform for the North and all the opportunities it can bring to the national national economic performance. Because ultimately, what levelling up and everything else is all about is not just economic performance, it's about improving lives. It's about making sure that poverty and uh, deprivation are progressively eradicated rather than just uh, conveniently managed. Absolutely. I think we can all agree on that. So what would you like to be hearing at the moment in, from, from whoever our next Prime Minister is in terms of their priorities for the North? Like, and what, what would the NP11 like to, like to hear more of? Clearly, the UK plan for growth that was launched about a year ago, irrespective of who launched it, was around three pillars of uh, innovation, infrastructure and skills. And they are still well and truly alive. And it's encouraging to hear particularly about the, the northern infrastructure requirements. You know, if you think about the scale of the opportunity as compared to the obvious price of HS2, both sides of the Pennines all the way to Leeds, the third largest city in the country, I am biased, obviously, because I come from, I live in Leeds now. Um, but, but more importantly, the northern powerhouse rail, that, that trans-Pennine linkage. And that's very important. The, the whole skills agenda continues to remain important. Um, and the innovation one in particular, the whole notion of the North having complementary activities, such as you know, Northern Life Sciences supercluster, that, that's complementary to the so-called golden arc of Oxcam London. I call it the, the, the platinum polygon, just, just being jocular, about how, how we can bring together such that the whole in that sector and many other sectors are, are great, is greater than some of the parts particularly around the whole clean energy and the net zero to the north, a uh, net zero agenda. And we shouldn't, you know, shouldn't forget that currently in excess of 50% of the renewable electricity in the whole of the UK generated in the north. One of the issues, I suppose, with our system of politics at the moment is that politicians are incentivized to look only to the short, short term. term. Yeah. And they, they, they don't think about what might be coming 10, 20, 100 years down the line but that I mean that from what you said is that, that is what you like to see isn't it you'd like them to put sort of their short-term gain to one side and think about what might be best for the north and the country as a whole much further down the line I think I think consensus consensus right across the political landscape about progressively eradicating that continuing deficit that the north runs that elsewhere who have some of the same social problems as we have in the north are having to fund through their relatively better economic success. You know, I've said this many times before, that the prize is, is eradicating what pre-pandemic, you know, was cost, you know, we're running at a billion a week of a deficit. And how do we turn that on its head and become a net contributing economy that adds to national wealth rather than depends on it created elsewhere just to preserve the status quo? And that's why I think, these things can be aligned and then say, right, we will within this particular administration or this particular parliament, the steps we will take towards that ambition, that outcome, are these. And that's one of the things that frustrates me as a business person that always thinks about well, what does success look like 
fine, that's what we'd like. So what should the recipe be? And thereby, these are the critical ingredients rather than often conversations around ingredients without necessarily knowing to what recipe they've been applied. And do you think the principles of levelling up obviously are, you know, amongst northern business leaders and people that come on this podcast understand why levelling up needs to happen? But it it strikes me that one of the things watching the Conservative leadership contest is that those principles are perhaps not shared everywhere in the country and perhaps in the south in the southeast where the house prices are much higher and that they they benefit from their proximity to london people are perhaps yet to be persuaded by the need for leveling up and they don't understand why more money and attention should be spent on the north do do you think that case needs to be made more more explicitly and more articulately than it is being made at the moment i think maybe um First of all, demystify what it means. You know, not, not all the South and Southeast is is leafy and buoyant. You know, there's there's pockets like there are in Leeds, Manchester, etc., of deprivation. So it's not unique to the North, and it's understanding that it's everywhere. Uh, but also, there may be different solutions required for different geographies, depending on their economic and social positioning. And it is, I say, at least a two decade uh, two decade project in my mind. Um, so I think I think it's important. Um, also, I think the signal is the scale of ambition needs to be matched by the scale of resources. Um, if, if, if going back to my northern example, Rob, you know, let, let's say a billion a week, you know, business as usual for the next two decades. That's a trillion of lost opportunity. Um, when you start thinking about that, and then saying, well, it's a fifty billion price tag for this, or a forty billion price tag for that. You begin to realize actually we've got to somehow reconcile these two positions recognizing of course the fiscal position the country is in um, how do we ensure that we get the investment for growth that ultimately will lead to what we all want is a better performing country a better place for everybody to live and enjoy their lives in as well as one that isn't overly burdened by by national debt and i think um, you know we, we've started on that journey um, but perhaps, again, in my mind, with my business hat on, nobody's portrayed what does that look like in two decades? What does that mean? You know, let me give you a, an illustrative example. If, 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 if households in West Yorkshire or households across the north, X percent are in fuel poverty today, is it going to be half of X percent in 10 years, not percent? Or what? And just as an example, just to get sort of some sort of indicator of what, how how progress is being made towards the the real agenda, which is, as I said, making 2022 look like it's not just a, a rerun of 1922. We always quite like I like on this podcast to try and uh, you know bring some positivity to the discussion and not just a uh, you know not 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 talk the north down. And I know as you know your position as chair of the NP11, you must have a good overview of some of the you know, really positive, exciting things that are going on in, in the North. Can, can you just give us any any examples of things that our listeners should be particularly excited about, which are going on in our in our great region at the moment? Well, I think I've already touched on the whole life sciences opportunity, which is a global opportunity that North can play a national part in. Uh, when it comes to decarbonisation and the two, you know, huge clusters, uh, both Northwest and Northeast, again, playing part of a a global role when it comes to trade and investment and taking advantage of all of those deals that have been done pre 
uh, sort of post post Brexit, including ultimately accession to something called CPTPP, which is effectively a, 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 an economic zone that two thirds of the world's uh, middle class live in. Those are huge opportunities for the businesses, the half million or so businesses in the north. Great opportunities for our uh, our universities, but importantly also great opportunities for for people who want to come not only from within the UK but from across the world to come and live and work uh, you know in 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 what is a magnetic north and we've seen how that's changed we've seen how some of those um, businesses that have come from the south rather than going somewhere else in the world have said we want to stay in the UK but we we think we might be we better served by being in the north not there's anything wrong with the south but it's it, our future lies that way and there's, there's there's loads and loads of examples of how we've moved the dial on. And that's why I feel very optimistic about the future. As long as we are laser-like focused on the outcome um, with the right recipe and thereby the right level of ingredients so that the why, how and what becomes reality. Now, finally, you've you stepped down recently as the chair of the Lee City Region Local Enterprise Partnership. What what are your plans for the coming years? Obviously, you're still on the you're still leading the NP11. But what things are you going to be? What, what's what's next for you in the next few months? Well, I, I guess a specific I will continue as being chair of the Peace Hall Trust in Halifax. And whilst it's all about a heritage building, actually that's an example of levelling up that's alive. What puts pride back in a a town like Halifax, which was part of the Industrial Revolution. Um, for me, the agenda for the North is not uh, not done. It's just begun. How that manifests itself, um, both in the sort of things we've talked about today, across the policy agenda, the, uh, the investment agenda, and particularly in relation to getting back a bit into the commercial world, is yet, is yet to be clarified in my own mind. There's obviously lots of things that I'd like to do, but certainly... Um, Pursuing, whilst I'm able, the notion that the North is not a problem, but an opportunity, a national opportunity uh, uh, with a massive prize and that the investment needs to commence, be commensurate with uh, being able to secure that prize. So, Roger Marsh, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you, Rob, and have a good day. Many of the stories we hear on the Northern Agenda are about how centralised our country is, whether it's politics or transport or business. All focus, it seems, is on London. And that's often the case when it comes to stories about the LGBTQ community. A new book, Queer Beyond London, looks beyond the capital and travels to four cities, Brighton, Plymouth, Manchester and Leeds, to learn about their queer history from the 60s to the noughties. I'm joined by academic and co-author of the book, Matt Cook. Matt is a professor of modern history at Birkbeck, specialising in the history of sexuality. Why is London seen as the centre of gay life? Why is it the queer story that we tell is sort of centred on, on, the, on the capital? I think, I think for all sorts of reasons. I mean, first of all, it is by far the biggest city in the UK. And so I think it's where there was a kind of... Um, a critical mass of people. There was the chance to be anonymous. It was where you had some of the most famous and infamous people living. And so when historians turn to um, 
to look at queer life, to look at LGBT life historically, the obvious place seemed to be London because that was where um, there seemed to be the most kind of venues. It seemed to, there was there was the most kind of infamous scandals and cases. Um, there was apparently the most prolific uh, sex scene. And so I think that's the reason why it kind of got writ large and it gained a kind of also international kind of iconic status as a, as a, as a queer city in that kind of broader queer network. Um, but what was really interesting, because my initial work was all on London. So my first two books centre on the capital. Um, but what I realised increasingly as I worked on the city is that uh, queer experience, community and identity differed in different parts of the city. So you can't really talk about London as a whole. You know, lives of men I was interviewing in Brixton were very different from those living in Notting Hill and the kind of local particular circumstances of those lives and the economic realities, housing costs, for example, um, meant that lives could be lived, lived in, were lived in very different ways. Um, and that kind of alerted me to how far London had been used to create a national story, as if London's story was was the story of the whole country. And of course, what I was realising as I realised how distinct different parts of London were was that, of course, different parts of the country would be distinct too. And that uh, led us beyond the capital. And, and I suppose beyond geographically, um, but also thinking about beyond in a way as kind of the, the, the queerness beyond London might also be, be beyond the model offered by London, that there might be something very different about it. So I suppose I was thinking we were, thinking we were using that that uh, that word quite deliberately to kind of have those two meanings. I mean, the gay scene from town to town, let alone city to city or from capital to other cities, it's just so different and disparate and diverse. One of my favourite things as a queer man myself is to check out other scenes yeah. because they're, they're sometimes just wildly different. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of things that we could we could we could point to that connect um, scenes in different cities. I mean, the kind of phenomena of the gay village, for example, is shared between kind of Manchester, London, Birmingham, even Newcastle, um, Brighton to an extent. You know, so there's there's a sense in which there are some shared shared histories, some shared um, cultural shifts, if you like. But what we found, we looked at four cities: Leeds, uh, Manchester, uh, Brighton, and Plymouth. And, and what we found beyond that was that the local economy. Um, you know, the distance from London, um, the local, broader local cultures and uh, 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 and sense and, and kind of city or, or regional identities also affected the way queer lives were lived, lived and understood. So to give a really obvious example, whilst we often celebrate and mark 1967 as a turning point in the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, it was a complete irrelevance in Plymouth because... Um, it was it was illegal to be gay in the military until 2000. And this was a sm relatively small city where a large proportion of people worked in the docks and for the military and where it was absolutely crucial not to be out. So there was a kind of pride in Plymouth in passing. And that didn't stop a kind of really vibrant lesbian and gay scene in the city in the 70s and 80s, for example. But it did mean that there was a different texture to queer life than in, say, Brighton, where um, the 1967 Act was more an affirmation of what they were already doing rather than anything new. Um, or, in, or in Manchester, where um, because of the kind of local council, the city council support for lesbian and gay rights, there's a real fusion of gay pride with metropolitan pride. 
Um, so, so in each of the cities, we found a different sense of what pride might mean um, and the way in which uh, queer lives were lived um, in those different places. It's really interesting that you say that sort of almost the, the passivity compared to maybe sort of the protest or just the way one lives their lives openly. I, I, I live in Manchester. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Salford. And it does feel like that the queer community is part of the Mancunian identity. This is something obviously that's changed over the last 60 years at least. But it does feel like it's part of our core identity as a city. You're absolutely right. I think it emerges out of something quite particular about Manchester. So first of all, if you think about that kind of very long history of radicalism, um, from Peterloo through the suffrage movement um, and the very strong industrial heritage and workers' union rights, the idea of a kind of um, solidarity um, amongst working class communities historically in Manchester in particular, but, but also in terms of kind of anti-racism and so on, there's been a kind of con- a series of concerted battles being fought in the city. Um, and add to that a particularly pernicious police regime in the city, not just with Anderton, but his two forerunners really established that policy of um, pinpointing, of, 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 um, of, of arresting uh, queer, but also black um, people in the city and really, really, really kind of um, humiliating and marginalising them, which actually gave rise then, I think, to a, to, 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 to a, a homosexual rights movement in Manchester that was way ahead of the rest of the country. Um, you know, in, in terms of its community activism. The movement in London in the 19, late 1950s and 1960s was much more a lobbying movement, um, whereas in, in, um, in Manchester, the kind of formation of the, of the campaign for homosexual equality was much more, was, was, was both lobbying and campaigning, but it was also a community-oriented um, form of activism, which really spoke to the particularity of Manchester, I think. It wasn't too far away from Manchester where the campaign for homosexuality equality met in Burnley at the Burnley Library in 71. And in advance of that, that was its new name, but in advance of that, it formed just actually across the Irwell in, in Salford in 1965, I think, as the Northwestern Committee for Homosexual Law Reform. And it gained its more its jazzier title a few years later, but it was already started that work um, in, in the latter half of the 60s and, and, and was absolutely kind of ahead of the game in that respect. What about Leeds? Obviously, we talked a bit about Manchester, but why did you choose Leeds as one of the cities to focus on? Our choices were really were interesting. I mean, the Brighton and Manchester seemed obvious as these they already had a kind of um, iconic status, and it felt like we we really needed to look at them. But we were keen to look at places that didn't have that iconic status, and so what that what the texture of queer life was in these other places. And Leeds was really interesting because. Um, what developed in Leeds in the um, 70s. And I mean, in, in some ways, it, 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 there was a mirror to Manchester because of the kind of industrial workplace solidarity and, and, and the union movement and so on. But added to that in the 70s in Manchester, in the, in the, in the mid to late 70s in Manchester, um, was a very um, strong women's rights, women's liberation movement, um, which was mobilised further through the um, Yorkshire Ripper murders um, and attacks. And so what happened in Leeds in the, from the late 70s into the, 80, into the 80s um, was a much more separatist lesbian community, a lesbian feminist community than we saw in the other cities. And one that you couldn't really find in the city centre bars. 
Um, so but you, you, you'd, you'd have to look hard for women in, in, in some of the bars around, around the calls and the station in Leeds. Um, and in part because there was this really strong network around Chapel Town, around the university, um, in other parts of those kind of central north suburbs uh, of Leeds where, you know, lesbian groups, lesbian groups, and lesbian feminist groups would meet above pubs, you know, in the back rooms of bars, in community centres, in each other's homes. Um, and in a really lively kind of um, community that was oriented around politics, around art, creativity, all sorts of other, um, um, you know, music, especially lots of lots of bands. Um, and the same goes actually for um, black queer community in Leeds, which, again, you know, we spoke to one guy who avidly avoided the bars in central in the centre of the city because they were cheek by jowl with National Front bars. So if you think about the particular strength of the National Front in Leeds in the 70s, you know, that made life especially difficult for um, black and uh, Asian uh, queer men and women in the city. And, and, and again, there was a kind of evacuation of the, of, of the centre. And you have to look quite hard, but there's really quite a kind of thriving queer Shabin um, and, and social scene in those central north suburbs, especially. So there's something really interesting about Leeds because there's a kind of decenteredness about it. So you did have the cluster of bars in the centre. Um, but it wasn't really until the early 2000s that, that that area around the calls and the Freedom Bridge and so on really brought people back into the centre as a more inclusive um, space that was welcoming to, to, sort of to, to trans people as well as um, to um, LGMB people. It seems that, in, in a way, the activism that took place in Leeds happened above bars, but in Manchester it might have happened in bars. We're in August now. The end of August is going to be Manchester Pride, which is previously known as Mardi Gras. It was the Mardi Gras Manchester. So it always seems that maybe Manchester is more of this big, shiny representation slash presentation of the community, whilst you say for, for Leeds, perhaps in the early days, it was that above bars getting together as a committee to then be open. It's interesting. I think I think there's a number of really interesting things about the difference between Leeds and Manchester. And one of them is the way in which, you know, because, I mean, there was a... Re- the, the, the policing in Manchester was a particular factor, I think, in community and in driving community and solidarity between lesbians and gay men. So the people we interviewed talked much more about a cohesive, a more, not entirely cohesive, but a more cohesive scene um, in Manchester, where women and men, trans people would socialise, network together. That wasn't happening in the same way in Leeds. But the other important factor in Manchester is that all those city centre warehouses, the deindustrialization of the city, left vacant spaces, um, which were taken over by especially kind of cutting edge dance, music. One of the old warehouses was a notorious kind of plate place for cruising you know so these empty spaces in the very center of the city opened up queer life in particular ways and particularly in relation to music and dance which Manchester already had a reputation for if you think about Northern Soul for example Um, and really I think what happened is the queer scene kind of um, capitalized and 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 work with, I suppose, the kind of music, cutting edge music and and, and dance scene. Um, so those th- two things became fused in Manchester, and that's what gave um, the queer scene in Manchester its profile, um, you know, and, and and its continuing profile. I think. I mean, the, the other important factor is that Manchester City Council worked much more proactively with queer communities in Le- Manchester than than happened in Leeds. 
Um, so, for example, the development, if you think about the development of Canal Street, for example, you know, whatever the critiques of that of that area are, you know, it, it was an interesting fusion of of kind of, you know, existing bars, you know, on, queer entrepreneurs and a council that was providing lighting, licensing and so on and was supportive of that development. So there's something really interesting, I think, about the particular factors in, in Manchester that created um, you know, it's kind of national and international status, especially from the 90s onwards. And Leeds, I think, has gained something of that in the past 10 years. Um, but it has a very different history and trajectory to get there and was, as I say, hugely important to the women's movement and to lesbian feminism, especially. Final question. Uh, do you think, having done all this work on uh, Queer Beyond London, if there is a distinction between a northern queer identity and a southern queer identity? That's really interesting. That's a really interesting question. I think... I think what was really interesting is we expected London to come up more um, in our interviews with in, in, in Leeds and Manchester. We thought it might be more of a reference point. But in fact, it, do, it does get mentioned often as slightly like, oh, bloody London, bloody Londoners. <laughs> um, but there is also a very strong sense, I think, of Northern identity and separately of Leeds and Mancunian identity, um, which... Um, which I think is grounded in a particularly strong sense of politics, community and solidarity, which I think is much less evident or somewhat less evident in Brighton, where I think there's much more of a culture of individualism. I mean, if you think of that, uh, Brighton and Hove, it's a city um, which which has a very low industrial base. It's much more um, small businesses, service sector, people running restaurants, cafes, small hotels and so on. So there's a much more, there's less of that kind of workplace solidarity, which I think breeds a different sort of politics. I mean, not that Brighton was not political; it certainly was. But in a very, in a, in, there's a different kind of texture to it than I think in the in those northern cities, um, where there was a much strong, a stronger sense, I think, of, of of solidarity in some ways. And finally, where can we get the book? Where can we find the book? All, all good booksellers. <laughs> all good booksellers. I'd especially recommend. I mean, if you're I mean, do support your local independent bookshops. You know, in London, we've got Gaze the Word, which, uh, you know, is certainly on sale there. And, and, and any independent bookshop, you know, go there, go there first. <laughs> any person who's watched Pride's the movie would definitely know about Gaze the Word. But it's still there. And uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Matt Cook, co-author of Queer Beyond London, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and dan o'donoghue and it's produced by daniel j mccoughlin if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the northern agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including apple and spotify Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.